0: Please turn with me again to the book of Hebrews as we continue our journey through this wonderful letter together. Today, entering into a new chapter, chapter 3. In the world of sports, there's often unending debate over who is the greatest in any one discipline. On occasion, an athlete will so separate himself from the rest of the field that we have unanimous agreement, such as in the case of someone like Michael Phelps, where no one's ever done what he has done in the sport of swimming. But most of the time, the debate over athletic greatness is not so neatly clean cut. And the most common debate of our day that gets heated is whether or not Michael Jordan or LeBron James is the greatest basketball player of all time. If you're 35 or older, you understand that Michael Jordan is the greatest of all time. If you're younger younger than 35, you likely mistakenly believe that LeBron James is the greatest of all time because both of those men, Michael Jordan and LeBron James, are still living. That entices reporters to get them to weigh in on this debate. Recently, a reporter asked Michael Jordan if he thought that his Chicago Bulls team from the 1990s could beat the LeBron James Lakers team of today to which he replied of course yes and so the reporter had to follow up with more information and and asked what do you think the score would be by how many points do you think you would win and he thought about it and said two or three and they the reporter said why why so small of a margin And he said, well, most of us are almost 60 now. (laughs) (laughs) The message conveyed by his response is obvious. He doesn't even think of LeBron James in the same category as himself. And in the case of Michael Jordan and LeBron James, the truth is their contribution to the sport of basketball is likely uh, closer in impact than Michael would like to admit. But there's another person whose greatness is in actuality so far superior to any other person that's ever existed that there's not enough hyperbolic language in the English vocabulary to adequately express his superiority. In the book of Hebrews, of course, we have been confronted time and time again with the greatness and undeniable superiority of the Lord Jesus Christ. We just finished an extended section in which the author proved to us that Christ is, in fact, greater even than the angels. But what we now begin to see as we continue our study is that the author is just getting warmed up in his arguments about the superiority of Christ, and he turns his gaze now from the angels... To the greatest figure in all of the Old Testament. Over the next few weeks, we will be privileged to unpack the author's argument of the great reality that the Lord Jesus Christ is superior even to Moses. The theme of Hebrews is the superiority of Christ. And we find ourselves now in chapter 3 in a section that begins in verse 1 and runs through verse 6. Let's read the text together. Hebrews 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses'. By just so much as the builder of the house has more honor than the house. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, for a testimony of those things which were to be spoken later. But Christ was faithful as a son over his house, whose house we are, if we hold fast our confidence and the boast of our hope firm until the end. What we see in these six verses is a very simple idea. The author calls us to meditate on Jesus as the one greater than Moses. And as we look at this over the next couple of weeks, we will see that there's really one primary argument that's being made here that's then supported by several descriptions or statements. And he begins with the command in verse 1, and then in verse 3, he's going to give us the reason for that command. But as is often the case, in the middle of those two verses are many modifying or descriptive statements. And because of that, we can kind of lose his main argument if we're not careful. So let me just begin by showing you the primary argument of the author by removing the, the modifying statements And just stating the the clear primary argument, it's this. Therefore, consider Jesus, for he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. That really is the heart of this text. But with that in mind, we're going to follow the argument of the author, beginning today with the command, and then next week looking at the reason for that command. And so let's jump into the text. In verses 1 and 2, we see the overarching command of this section to set your mind on Jesus. Set your mind on Jesus. He begins there in verse 1 with the word, therefore. Obviously, he is turning the corner now to a a new idea, but he's not left the larger argument. He's still talking about the superiority of Christ, but now he's turning to one specific aspect, a different aspect, to make that larger argument. In light of all that the author has already explained about Jesus, he is the unique son of God, superior to the angels, our perfect representative, our high priest, our helper even in the midst of temptation, he now calls us to think even more intently about the Savior. But before getting to the actual command, he begins with two descriptions about us. Two descriptions of every true believer. And he's going to remind us of who we are in Christ first in hopes of motivating us to then obey the command that's coming momentarily. So what are these two descriptions of every believer? The first description is that we are holy brethren. Therefore, holy brethren. Now as you know, it's not uncommon at all for the Bible to refer to Christians as brothers or sisters. In fact, it's such a common uh, reality that we even use it in greeting one another in church. We call each other brother or sister in Christ. But it's very rare to see this combination, holy brethren, as it is here. But hopefully, if you've been with us, it's not a uh, foreign to you because we looked at this description in Hebrews chapter two verses or verse 11, at least the theology behind the description, where he says there, For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren. Here in this verse, the author proved to us that Jesus Christ is the one who sanctifies every believer. And on that basis, he now applies that truth to us and calls us Holy. Our holiness, as we studied, is not based on our own efforts, on our own merits. It's not a a holiness that's intrinsic to us. In fact, it's based upon the intrinsic holiness of the Lord Jesus Christ that then is imputed to us. He applies his holiness to us by grace through faith. And now, because of that, we are, in the present tense, considered actually holy. He imputed his holiness to us in salvation. He now brings us along in progressive sanctification, making us day by day more into the image of Christ, which will, of course, culminate in our perfect sanctification that we call glorification, when he brings us to himself. Because of all of that, all that we studied back in verse 11 of chapter 2, the author now reminds us of that and applies it to us by calling us holy. But not just holy. Holy brethren, This too comes right out of chapter 2 verse 11 where he says there, astonishingly, he is not ashamed to call us brethren. We study that we are brothers with the Lord Jesus Christ, but we also now enter into a collective brotherhood with one another because we are all joined together in Christ as the Holy Spirit baptizes us into Christ and therefore this redeemed family. But the the point of beginning this section with this first description is to cause all of the glory and the profundity of those truths that we've just studied in in chapter 2 to come rushing into our minds as we prepare for what's ahead of us in chapter 3. He wants us to remember anew that because of the gracious work of Christ and his suffering on the cross, he has made us truly holy brethren. If you're thinking rightly about that description, your heart should be soaring with joy and wonder and gratitude that Jesus Christ would would purchase and apply such great realities to you if you're in Christ this morning. And as you're overcome by the goodness of Christ extended to you in the gospel, I hope your heart is already churning with readiness for the coming command. But having called us holy brethren, he calls us something else. The second description Of every Christian, we are not only holy brethren, but we are the heavenly called. The heavenly called. Look back at the text. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling. Now, the word partakers indicates a a mutual sharing in something. In this case, every Christian is said to be a mutual sharer or participant in a heavenly calling. The definition of that word, the Greek word for call, is an invitation to experience of special privilege and responsibility. So you see there it's translated as call or calling or invitation. But this calling here is no ordinary calling because it is a heavenly calling. That is to say it comes from heaven or rather it comes from the one who inhabits heaven. It is a divine calling. It's a calling of God to every Christian, we are called out to be followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what we call in theological terms the effectual call of the gospel. We see this described in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30, where it says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. And these whom he predestined, he also called And these whom he called, he also justified, and these whom he justified, he also glorified. Listen, if you're a Christian this morning, if you have repented of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone for salvation... That means at some point in your life, the Father called you to the Son through the preaching of the gospel. He reached down from heaven, as it were, regenerated your heart so that you could see Christ for who he is, see yourself as a sinner before God, and then come running in response to the call of the gospel. This is why Jesus would say in John 10, 27 and 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. For the true Christian whose heart has been radically changed through the process of regeneration, there came a point in time in which the gospel message came to you in a different way. It was, in fact, God calling you to himself, the effectual call unto salvation. There is, of course, also the general call of the gospel. The gospel goes out into the entire world. It's a a real offer of the gospel for which humanity is responsible for rejecting. And yet, because we are dead in our sins, desperately in need of God to act on our behalf, we need this effectual call of the gospel, which comes with the package of regeneration, where our eyes are open to the truth, and we come hurriedly and readily and happily in repentance and faith to the Lord Jesus Christ. If you're a Christian, this effectual call has come to you. Maybe it was a gospel presentation in a sermon. Maybe it was in a song. Maybe it was through reading the scriptures. Maybe it was a personal conversation with another believer, even through thinking back on the gospel that you heard in childhood. But it's at some point, through the preaching of the gospel, you truly heard it for what it was and came to Christ. And what you heard in the gospel was not simply the voice of a good man, not simply the voice of a a great historical figure, but you heard it for what it was the perfect and only God man, the Son of God, sent to pay for our sins, who is even now alive at the right hand of the Father. Like a sheep recognizing the voice of the shepherd, you heard it and you came running. We are the heavenly called. We're partakers in this heavenly calling. That's what it means. These two wonderful reminders. We are a holy brethren, sanctified, set apart by the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are these partakers in this heavenly calling. All of this is to motivate us, to get us ready out of joy and gratitude for what God has done for us to respond to this simple and yet profound command. And here is now the command. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. This is a, a clear command in the Greek text. It means to give careful consideration or to consider closely. It's not a casual consideration. It, it is calculated. It is, it is careful. It is the fullness of your mental focus given to this consideration and at first glance this might seem like an unnecessary redundancy on the part of the author of hebrews after all what have we been doing since the very first verse of hebrews if not considering jesus haven't we been plumbing the depths of the superiority of christ with every word and every line of this letter so far so what does the author mean By calling us to do again what we've already been so intent on doing this entire time for two whole chapters. Well, he's thankfully teaching us something very profound about the Christian life and the Christian perspective. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you never move beyond him. Let me say that again. When you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ, you never move or grow beyond him. For the rest of eternity, we will be beholding and considering the infinite glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. We began this letter by looking intently at the person of Jesus Christ, and we learned that he's none other than the Son of God. Then we took that knowledge, and we we considered, based upon that knowledge, the information that Jesus Christ is, is also greater than the angels, the one through whom the law of God was mediated to Moses. Now we've gleaned the glories of that reality and the author says now take that information and look again, look again unto Christ. Look intently, look continuously, look more deeply. Consider Jesus. Friends, every time you consider Jesus, you find there's more to him than the last time you considered him. And that's not because he's changing. It's because he's changing you. As you behold him in the word of God, the spirit of God reveals to you more and more of the revelation of Jesus Christ that's contained here for us in the written scriptures. And so it is that the author says, having learned all that we've learned so far, take that new deeper knowledge of Christ and look at him anew. Let me ask you, is it your daily priority to consider Jesus? you open the word of God not only as a discipline but in recognition of your need and desire to know him and to be conformed to him. If you've given into the false idea that you considered all there was to consider about Jesus when you heard the gospel and responded in faith, then you have woefully underestimated the true reality of Jesus Christ. In fact, if you truly believe that, you need to consider whether or not you've come to know the true Jesus at all. Every day from now to the rest of eternity, we must take full advantage of the privilege that we have as believers to consider Jesus. Just as the song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. The Apostle Paul called us to this same commitment back in Colossians chapter 3 when we studied Colossians. He says, therefore, if you've been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The truth is we are so tempted to fix our gaze on much lesser things, aren't we? Our gaze is far too often fixed on, on financial desires, burdens, responsibilities, future goals or past failures, family responsibilities, joys, sorrows, unsettling world and cultural events, and even the constant pursuit of mental entertainment. And while there are, are certainly a time or is certainly a time and a place to consider all of those things. If we consider these things with more regularity, more fervency, more eagerness than we consider Christ, we will find our spiritual hearts beginning to grow cold. God will begin to seem small and distant while the world seems big and overwhelming. But if we make it our practice to consider these earthly things only after and through the lens of our consideration of the Lord Jesus Christ, then we will see these temporal things for what they really are. They are temporal, small, and fleeting, while Christ is transcendent, infinite, and eternal. And so, friend, if you've neglected to make it your priority to continuously and joyously consider Jesus, I hope you understand now the importance, indeed the command, for Jesus to be the one who captures your mental gaze. Because your spiritual health, your spiritual life depends on considering Jesus. Now in verse 3, which we'll get to next week, the author is going to call us to consider Jesus in one very specific way, dealing with Moses. But for now, he continues to build up the anticipation for that argument by following this command with two descriptions now of Jesus. And so here's the structure. He begins with two descriptions of us as Christians. Then he gives the command and follows the command with two descriptions of who Jesus is. And all of this wraps together into one neat package of anticipation for the coming instruction. So let's look at these descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Description number one involves his offices. His offices. Look back at the text, chapter 3. Verse 1, therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Well, the first thing the author does is turn our attention to two specific offices that Jesus Christ perfectly fulfilled according to the will of the Father. And both of these words, apostle and high priest, are introduced, they're connected by one Greek article. The word article is just the word the. So here the word thee is applied to both apostle and high priest. What that means is that they go together as a package and they both refer to the same person, to Jesus Christ. The second of these offices, high priest, is one we were introduced to already in Hebrews. It's one that we will study in great depth in coming weeks. But the first, the idea of Christ as apostle, is only found here in Hebrews. Only here is Jesus referred to as fulfilling the office of apostle. Now, when we think of the word apostle, typically, who do we think of? We think of the 12, right? Or maybe the apostle Paul, those whom, whom Christ delegated, called to be his official representatives after he ascended to the Father. But here we learn that Jesus himself was the ultimate apostle, and based on that authority, then sent out the other apostles. To really understand what the author's getting at, we have to just simply define the word apostle. What is an apostle? An apostle is, uh, it refers to messengers with extraordinary status in the scriptures, especially those messengers of God. And so we could translate the word apostle as messenger or even envoy. It's more than just a messenger, though. It's, it's a messenger who's been authenticated by the one sending him. So that that messenger comes with the full rights and authority of the one who sent him. He has the full authority to speak and act on behalf of the one by whom he was sent. In this case, we know from the next line who it is that sent the son. Look at the text again. It says, he was faithful to him who appointed him in verse 2. The him in the middle of that refers to God the Father. It is God the Father who appointed the Son to apostleship and to this high priest uh, position. Jesus, as the God man, then sent forth from the Father, who functioned as the authentic, authoritative, ultimate apostle. He had the full authority to speak on the Father's behalf and to act on the Father's behalf. He was an authorized representative. But not only did he function as this ultimate apostle, but as high priest. We introduced this description of Christ a couple of weeks ago. We won't go into it in depth here, but we will in weeks to come. The purpose of of mentioning this description of Christ in conjunction with his apostleship is to show that in Jesus, we really have perfect and complete representation. Think about it this way. As apostle... Jesus represented the Father to us, right? He came and spoke and acted on the Father's behalf. But as high priest, he goes back to the Father, representing us to the Father by his own blood so that we can enter there. And so he is the perfect representative then on every front, representing the Father to us and us to the Father. No one could fulfill these two offices in this way other than Jesus Christ. Christ. But there's something else for us to consider here because he follows these descriptions with these interesting words of our confession. Look back at verse 1 at the end. He's the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now, if you remember from the beginning of our study in Hebrews, we don't have a lot of information in the the book of Hebrews about the specific context that these people are going through. We don't even know who the author of the letter of Hebrews is. But it's pretty clear, it's a, a clear indication from the fact that there's so much argumentation over the superiority of Christ that it's very likely, it's logical, that there must have been some kind of temptation presented to these people to turn their gaze away from Christ after other things. Perhaps it was to turn it to angels, as some false teachers called for the the worship of angels. Perhaps it was to return to their roots in Judaism and and taking their eyes off of Christ and returning to the law. We can't be sure... But clearly, there must have been some kind of temptation to turn away from Jesus. And so the the author continues to say, no, look to Jesus. Consider Jesus. Put your gaze upon Jesus. And he reminds us here that Jesus Christ is our confession. The the thing that unifies every Christian person, the person that truly knows the Lord Jesus Christ, is this unique confession of Jesus Christ Christ. As Lord. This confession comes first from the mouth of Peter. You remember, in response to the question from Jesus of, Who do you say that I am? Peter replies in Matthew 16 16, Simon Peter answered, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That is the confession of every true believer. And let me just stop here and say that this is not just a question. It is the question. It was the question in the day of Peter. It's the question in our day. And it will be the question for the rest of human history as long as the Lord tarries. In fact, let me turn it to you. Who do you say that Jesus is? The question's just as relevant this morning as it ever was. Understand that not every person is included in these descriptions, holy brethren, those who are partakers of a heavenly calling. The dividing line comes down to those who make this confession. Who do you say that I am? The Bible reveals that every single one of us is a sinner who's rebelled against a holy God. Because of that, we are all universally guilty before God and deserving of his wrath and punishment for our sin. But God the Father sent Jesus Christ as our perfect representative, representing the Father to us so that we could know God and the Son and then representing us to the Father. How did he do that? He did that by living a perfect sinless life And then dying willingly on a cross, offering up his perfect life as a sacrifice unto God to pay for the sins of all who would ever believe in him. Then the Bible says he rose again on the third day in victory over sin, proving that he was indeed the Son of God and that the Father had accepted his sacrifice. The Bible says that all who will repent of their sins and put their faith in Jesus Christ, making this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. He is my only hope of salvation. The Bible says for all who make that confession in humble repentance will be saved. And that's what the author means when he says that Jesus is our confession. The apostle and high priest Of our confession. But he goes on to give a second description of Jesus. He describes his faithfulness. His faithfulness. Now, this description comes to us in the form of a comparison. Look back at the text in verse 2. It says, He was faithful to him who appointed him, as Moses also was in all his house. Now, first he makes this statement that he was faithful to him who appointed him. That is, that Jesus Christ was faithful to the Father who is the one who appointed him as the apostle and the high priest. And in the fulfillment of the obligations and responsibilities contained in these two appointments, Jesus was perfectly faithful. We could say he was perfectly flawless. Indeed, he was absolutely, completely perfect. We've already seen that idea. We've already seen the idea of Jesus' faithfulness, again, back in chapter 2. Hebrews 2.17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So the concept of Jesus being faithful is not new. But what is new is the comparison that he brings up in the rest of the verse. At the end of the verse, he says, not only was he faithful, but he was faithful as Moses was in all his house. Now, with that statement, the author turns our attention to the new theme that he wants us to think about, the comparison of Jesus Christ with Moses. Again, we've now proven that he's superior to the angels. Now we look at Moses himself. And notice here, first of all, his intention is not to draw a contrast between Jesus and Moses, but to make a a positive comparison. He's going to make a contrast in verse 3, but he begins here in verse 2 with a positive comparison. The thing that Moses and Jesus have in common here is faithfulness, to the appointment given to them by God the Father. Specifically, he says, that Jesus was faithful as Moses was faithful in all his house. Now, that, that phrase, his house, is a phrase about which much ink has been spilled. And you can go and read that ink if you would like to. But I, I, I think actually this is much more clear than many want to make it. What is this house? What house is he talking about? It's actually very clear in context, and he's actually quoting from Numbers chapter 12, verse 7, which we'll see here in a moment. But the term house here is just the people over which Moses was appointed to lead. And who was that? It was the people of Israel called out of Egypt by Yahweh. You remember the story. And in context, we're supposed to see an immediate comparison between Jesus and Moses. Though Moses is nowhere in Scripture referred to as either an apostle or a high priest, there is one specific, very narrow sense in which he fulfilled those roles. And and the sense that I mean is this. Moses also spoke to the people as God's representative and then went before God as a mediator between the people and God. And so in that sense only, He also was an apostle and high priest, so to speak. He fulfilled those same roles that we talked about with Christ a moment ago, but on a much simpler, smaller scale, obviously, and not in perfection. We know that Moses was a sinner. We even see his sin keeping him from entering into the promised land. But on the whole, Moses was faithful in those roles. That's the idea. They both were faithful. Now, why is it significant that the author of Hebrews would make a positive comparison between Jesus and Moses. Well, it seems very likely, even from the name of the book, that those receiving this letter were predominantly, if not entirely, Jews. And so they understood the law, they understood the Old Testament. Believe me, they were very familiar with Moses. In fact, if you had asked a Jewish person at that time who is the premier, the most important character in all of of Israel's history in the Old Testament, they would have resoundingly answered Moses. It's Moses. And so by comparing Jesus to Moses, the author of Hebrews is going right at the heart of Judaism. He's going right at the heart of the Old Covenant, right at the heart of the law. Remember that it was through the angels that the law was given to Moses. So now having dealt with the angels, he turns to Moses, the, the recipient of the law, who then gave it to the people. The stature and importance of Moses for the people of Israel supersedes even men like Abraham, Jacob, Joseph, even King David and King Solomon. Why? Why is Moses so preeminent as an Old Testament figure? The answer is because no person in human history has had a more intimate relationship with God or been more clearly publicly identified as God's chosen mouthpiece than Moses was. That is, until the Lord Jesus Christ and so if the author's going to succeed in proving that Jesus Christ is superior over every being in the universe, he's got to deal with Moses. He's got to talk about this figure Moses who is a, the chief character in the, in the history of Israel, the chief character of the Old Testament. But this morning we find ourselves at a disadvantage in comparison with the original audience of this letter because we're 2,000 years or so removed from the original writing of the letter and we're a room full of predominantly Gentiles if not entirely Gentiles and most likely there's not a single person in this room who walked in here today wondering if Moses or Jesus was greater at least I hope you didn't wonder that if you did please speak to me after the service because as we will see, there is really no comparison. And that's what the author is going to get at here in verse 3. But for now, he's, he's giving us this side-by-side comparison. And in order to feel the same weight of impact, when, when the author brings up the name Moses that the original audience would have feel, uh, felt, we have to do some, some homework. We have to think back through this man Moses and his importance. Because only then will we be hit in the same way with the same impact as the original audience. And so I just want to briefly, we're not going to go to all of these passages. I'm going to give you a list of some of the highlights of the ministry of Moses. Just to remind us of who this man was and the amazing things that God did in and through him. Eleven things to be specific. Most of these we'll just mention and move on. But first of all, remember Moses' calling. calling. Remember his calling in Exodus 3 and 4. And the pre incarnate Jesus Christ appears to him in a burning bush of all things and speaks personally to Moses. And remember that in that commissioning of Moses, it's Moses who has the privilege of first hearing the, the proper personal name of God, Yahweh. It's to Moses that God reveals his name. Secondly, Think of Moses' representation of God before Pharaoh. Remember all of the the amazing plagues that God brought upon the Egyptians and then how he he brought them out and and then, of course, parted the Red Sea, thirdly, in Exodus 14. Fourthly, remember his reception of the law and the covenant, Exodus 19-31. to The law came initially to Moses one-on-one. Remember, when he, God says to the people, no one else can cross this line. No one else can even touch this mountain or they will die. I only want to talk to one man, Moses. Think about that. This is, this is Moses. This is why the people thought of him so, so highly. In fact, think of it this way. The entire way of living and worship of the people of Israel came through the ministry of Moses. It was through Moses that the law was given. It was through Moses that that they understood God wants you to live this way and not this way. And so in that sense, their whole way of life was connected to this man, Moses. Fifthly, remember his personal vision of God. You remember how in in Exodus 33 and 34, Moses asked God, show me your glory. You remember that? It's really an an audacious uh, question. He says, God, I want to see your glory. I want to see a visible display of your glory. And the crazy thing is God does it. God says, you can't see my face because no one can see my face and live. But I'm going to let you see my back. And he appears before Moses. And remember, he makes that that great declaration, the self-revelation of God, where God comes and says to Moses, the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate, slow to anger. That was Moses that saw and heard the Lord in that intimate way. Number six, his face shone with God's glory. You remember that? Moses spent such intimate time with God, so close to his glory, that his own face was shining with the glory of God, like the moon reflecting the sun. So much so that he had to wear a veil when he walked among the people because they were terrified to look on the glory of God that was radiating from his face. Number seven, his consecration of the tabernacle and the priest's. While Moses would not be the high priest, that would go to his brother Aaron. It was Moses who would install the priests, who would sort of consecrate the priesthood that would continue on through the the life and worship of Israel. And it was Moses who would consecrate the tabernacle. Number eight, remember his vindication over the sons of Korah? You want to talk about a visible display of God saying, Moses is my guy? You remember what happens here? The sons of Korah rise up and they say, you know, what gives? How come, how come you're putting yourself above the people? I mean, we all, can, we all believe in Yahweh too. We all have something to say. What does God do to demonstrate that Moses is his mouthpiece and not these men? Literally, the earth swallows them. Think about that. It opens and swallows them and covers them over again. I would say that's a pretty clear testimony, that Moses was the mouthpiece of God. Number nine, his authorship of the Pentateuch. The first five books of the Bible were all penned by Moses, so much so that when Jesus speaks of of the Old Testament, he often speaks of it as Moses and the prophets. It's a summary way of saying the entire Old Testament. Remember, tenthly, his burial. No other human's ever had a burial like this. We're going to read this passage, Deuteronomy 34, beginning in verse 5. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him. Is he capitalized in your Bible? It should be. Guess who he is? God. God buried Moses. God physically buries him. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no man knows his burial place to this day. Because God secretly buried him. Going down to verse 10, it says, Since that time no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, for all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, all his servants and all his land, and for all the mighty power and for all the mighty terror which Moses performed in the sight of all Israel. But having discussed these ten descriptions of the ministry of Moses, and there are many others, I want us to turn to one more, and I've saved this one for last, because it's this passage that the author of Hebrews has in mind when he writes what we just read in verse 2. He's thinking of one particular Old Testament text, and it's Numbers 12. Numbers 12, and this is Moses's vindication over Miriam and Aaron, his siblings. Numbers 12, we're going to read this account, beginning in verse 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he had married a Cushite woman. The assumption is his first wife had passed away. He remarries, and they're upset about who he remarries. Verse 2, and they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? This is his brother and sister, and the Lord... Heard it. Uh oh. Verse three. Now listen to this description. This is the inspired word of God. Moses didn't write this. This is this is written about Moses. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Think about that. This is not Moses saying this of himself. This is this is God saying that this was true. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and to Miriam, You three come out of the tent of meeting. Come out to the tent of meeting. So the three of them came out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and stood at the doorway of the tent, and he called Aaron and Miriam. When they had both come forward, he said... Now listen to what God says. This is astounding. Listen to the description of Moses. you want to know why the people had such a high vision of Moses? Listen to this. Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak to him in a dream. Not so with my servant Moses. He's making a distinction here between every other prophet and Moses. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. Now, does that line sound familiar? That's the quote. That's the quote that the author of Hebrews has pulled out for us. He was faithful in all my household. Verse 8. With him, I speak mouth to mouth, even openly. And not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant against Moses? So the anger of the Lord burned against them, and he departed. It goes on to say that his sister Miriam is struck down with leprosy. She has to go outside the camp in front of the whole nation so that the whole nation knows that God again has said, Moses is my mouthpiece, not Miriam, not Aaron. And then after her time of being unclean, she comes back into the camp. This is Moses. Hopefully now you understand why the author of Hebrews chooses to directly address the fact that Jesus is superior to Moses. By God's own inspired testimony in Scripture, there had never been another prophet that rivaled the significance of Moses or the intimacy of the relationship that Moses had with God. So when the author makes this statement that Jesus was faithful in the same way that Moses was faithful, the people would have listened up. That's not a common statement. The Jews would have understood. Moses was in his own category. And so for this man in this letter to say that Jesus was faithful in the same way that Moses was faithful, the people understand there's something different about this man, Jesus and here's the thing, the author's not just going to make a comparison, he's going to make a contrast that comes in verse 3. Listen to the contrast that he says in verse 3. For he has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Wow. You see, by understanding how exalted Moses was, we now understand how supremely exalted Christ is, because Christ was counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now, next week we'll spend our time dissecting what this means, that Jesus was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, but I just wanted to give you a a glimpse of it to be meditating on this week. But as we draw our time to a close, we need to let this text sit on us and be applied to our own hearts. And there's really only one appropriate response to what the author has said, and it's to do what he commanded us to do. Here is the application of this text. Set your mind on Jesus. Set your mind on Jesus. Let me encourage you to make it your daily discipline and delight to consider Jesus. When you wake up in the morning... Set your mind on Jesus. When you are on your way to work, set your mind on Jesus. When throughout the day you're bombarded with a myriad of tests and temptations, friends, set your mind on Jesus. When you're crushed under the weight of your circumstances and the difficult trials of life in a fallen world, set your mind on Jesus. When his, In his kindness, he actually answers your prayers or allows you to enjoy the, the temporal blessings of this earthly life. Even then, set your mind on Jesus. Consider that Jesus, as the, the great apostle, the son of God, and the, the, the high priest, has revealed the Father to us and has gone before us with his own blood to, to pave the way, to purchase our redemption so that we could go also to be with the Father. Because every time you consider Jesus, you see another layer of glory than you saw before. And then you take that new knowledge that you've gained from gazing at Jesus this time, and you apply it the next time and see another layer and another and another. We begin the Christian life by considering Jesus. We continue in the Christian life by considering Jesus and we will spend eternity together fellowshipping as we consider together the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of an evening not that long ago and I happened to see through our kitchen window a a glimpse of the sunset and I could see through the window that it was a particularly beautiful sunset and so I, I went outside and sat on the back patio just to watch And enjoy. And as I sat there looking at this living painting of God before me, I noticed that it was slowly but continually increasing in beauty. As the clouds moved slowly by and the sun edged one degree closer to the horizon at a time, this array of colors became more and more glorious by the moment. The longer I looked the more there was to see and the longer I looked the more I wanted to look. Until finally as I knew would happen the sun sank behind the horizon and the glories of that sunset were hidden and lived only in my memory. Christian when we consider Jesus correctly it has a similar effect as that glorious sunset. All other things seem to fade away, and all that's left to do is to stand back and bask in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the more you look, the more you find, and the more you look, the more you find you want to look. But of course, the great difference between that sunset and the glories of Jesus Christ is that his glory never fades and his glory never sets And so in your walk through this life, with all its joys and all its trials and temptations, open up the precious word of God and behold the glory of Christ. Read the word, meditate upon the word, memorize the word so that all throughout the day you can literally consider Jesus and do it again and do it again and do it again. And every time you do that, you will see more of him and find that it only encourages you to look again because he is infinite. This is the Christian life. Set your mind on Jesus. What a glorious Savior we have. It's my prayer that we would be a people marked by a stubborn, joyful commitment to set our gaze on the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, to open your word and to look at you, to behold who you are is such a privilege to see your glory displayed again before us. Forgive us that so often we, we sinfully turn our minds to such lesser things. Help us to find joy and delight in considering you And not just thinking on you, but seeking to be conformed to you. Seeking to walk in newness of life. Seeking to to walk in obedience to you as we behold you in your word. God, help us to turn our eyes to Jesus in the scriptures. And as we do, may the things of this world grow strangely dim. May they fade into the background in comparison. And may that cause us to live our earthly lives with a heavenly perspective. We're humbled to be your children, and we're thankful that you are our glorious Savior. It's in your precious name we pray. Amen.